Hello and welcome to the Anxiety to Confidence podcast. I'm your host, Siobhan Booth, and I've been a clinical hypnotherapist since 2011. I specialise in helping people overcome anxiety and build confidence instead. This weekly podcast will cover a wide range of mental health issues related to anxiety, along with some helpful tips and suggestions that you can try at home. If you have any questions that you'd like answered in a future episode, then please head to www.anxietytoconfidence.com forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode. This week, I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Ryan Lumber, who is a lecturer in psychology and also a researcher. Now, Ryan is a lecturer at the University of Derby with their online learning. And in what is probably the highlight of his career, he is in fact the supervisor so far for my master's dissertation. Now, Ryan's research has very much focused on nature connectedness and the ways in which we can become more connected to nature. So the different pathways and the different things that people can do in order to build that connection with nature. He's also done a lot of work into how this affects us in terms of our well-being and what the positive benefits of developing a connection to nature are. In this episode, we are talking through the different ways that you can build your connection to nature, even if you live quite far away from the countryside or you don't have a lot of green space. And he's talking through what the evidence tells us this helps us with, how it helps us in terms of our well-being and even how it helps us in terms of our mental health as well. So it's a really, really interesting episode and Ryan is a great speaker. He's really enthusiastic about the topic and really knowledgeable as well. Ryan very kindly agreed to be on my podcast this week because I am also researching nature connectedness and well-being as part of my master's dissertation. So I do have a little favour to ask of you. If you would be happy to take part in my research, if you're over 18 and if you haven't had a brain injury that has required medical attention, then all you will need to do is head to the link which will be in the description to this podcast and fill out the questionnaires online. It should only take about 20 minutes, if that, to go through all of the different questions. Now what I'm looking into is how our experience of nature as a child affects our nature connectedness as we get older. I'm looking at how that affects our well-being and I'm also looking at a few other things as well. So I'm also looking at how personality can interact with that and how other childhood experiences can interact with that as well. So it's a really exciting project to be involved in. Uh, Some of it's quite new stuff and some of it will be adding to the research that Ryan will be talking about as well. So if you do have a bit of time, it would be hugely appreciated. As I'm sure you can imagine, we need a few or quite a few people to take part in order to make the research really show us anything useful. So if you have a bit of time, please do head to that link and please do join in with the research that I am trying to run. But Until you've got time to do that, make sure you enjoy this episode. There's loads of really great tips and loads of ideas of things that you can try at home. Okay, maybe you could start then by giving us a bit of background about yourself, how you got into studying Mm. nature and well-being. Yeah, so um, (laughs) I went to university what would be considered kind of relatively late um, when I was 23. I first did my undergraduate degree, and I came to the University of Derby, in fact, where you're doing your distance uh, study. And um, I did psychology because I was always passionate about it. I was told 
by my A-level tutor that I'd be good at it. And I was kind of lost. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to do something that meant that I didn't really waste my life, but I did something positive. Um, so I did, I did psychology for three years. Um, I then finished that degree, went and worked in a secondary school for a year as kind of a, a cover, temporary cover, kind of manage, class manager type thing, um, which was, um, an interesting experience to put it <laughs> nicely. It was, it, it was hell. It was really tough. And, um, but it was great because what it did, it affirmed to me what I really wanted to do. I wanted to, to teach because I, I did enjoy that aspect, but it was a different level. I wanted to teach at a higher education level and kind of do research alongside it. I wasn't entirely sure on the topic area though. So I wound up doing a master's degree at Nottingham Trent in psychological wellbeing and mental health. Um, partly because, um, at the time, um, members of my family were suffering quite badly from mental health issues and so really it was a means for me to understand it from an academic point of view because I was living the experience of supporting them but understanding it you know what psychiatrists would say what clinical psychologists would say even though I had that background in basic psychology really ultimately what it is is a foundational understanding so I, I wanted more so that, that was kind of my motivation as I was doing it, I, I developed all the, all the kind of the master's level research skills and everything else, and I enjoyed my time studying, ultimately. And I took a bit of a gamble. I made sure that um, essentially study was my main vocation, so took a loan out and everything else to, to, to fund my studies whilst working part-time to pay for it all. And it was really tough, but I managed to do really, really well. I got the, the distinction grade that I was after because I knew that what that would do is it would give me as much of an edge as possible when competing with other people. What I did do was decide, okay, do I want to go down the EdSight route? Because I've, I've been working in schools and doing other, other kind of associated things alongside it. Or did I want to go down a stricter PhD route, be a researcher, teach at higher education level? I applied for both and got nowhere. So you keep, you know, doing applications and you get kind of knock back constantly and it's you have to be a bit tenacious and you have to spot the opportunities that work really well for you at the time Derby were offering PhDs funded so you got paid a little bit of money to live off in exchange for your fees being covered and you could teach essentially for you know six hours a week or whatever it might be and I thought that this was a great opportunity when it came up it was essentially blank Often when you apply for PhDs, they're normally on a, on a already pre-established topic, so you don't get a choice. Um, you, you kind of go for it and you have to study somebody else's idea, essentially. The ones at Derby were open completely. So you could pick whatever topic you wanted, as long as you, there was a supervisor there to supervise you, you could go for whatever you wanted to do. I saw some of the list of topics and they're all fantastic, but there wasn't one of the, at the time that really caught my kind of interest. Until I read it again, I found one by um, the now Professor Miles Richardson at Derby. Miles had just started looking at the area of nature and why it was good for people's well-being. And um, he was coming from it from a former kind of ergonomist background. So he, he kind of changed focus entirely to this, partly because of his own nature experiences as well. I looked at it and I was reading his um, kind of summary of the area. And... What it did was it harked back to my time as an undergrad. 
when I was an undergrad, I lived in a large house with an art student and four or five um, biology students, so zoology, biology, ecology students. And I remember that we used to have uh, kind-hearted discussions about um, the role that uh, people play in um, conservation efforts, in protecting nature. They were very much of the opinion that because of their training in that discipline, it was up to them to go out and do hands-on action, which I agreed with. But for me, I felt that actually there needed to be more societal change. And that kind of stuck with me all the way through. So when I saw Mars's um, kind of uh, overview of, you know, he's interested in nature and well-being, what I was thinking at the time was, that's all well and good. But actually, how do we get to that positive relationship that he's talking about that seems to be good for this thing? And the rest is history. Um, I wound up being awarded the uh, the PhD studentship, which which was fantastic, um, and it meant that I spent three years, pretty much, yeah, I submitted three years to the day, being paid essentially to do a little bit of teaching, a lot of reading, research, and a lot of form filling, and um, it all worked out in the end. Um, I managed to get the PhD, and through it, I created something which I'm quite proud of actually overall, um, and which seems to have done quite a bit of good, and that were that was the Pathways to Nature Connectedness. Because essentially, everyone was really interested in how having that positive relationship with nature, you just had good well-being and hopefully better physical health maybe. And maybe, just maybe, you might be more pro-environmental. But no one ever stopped to consider, well, how did you become connected in the first place? There were these kind of vague notions and everything else, but no one had done anything systematically to work out, okay, so what are the key things that you should be doing? What are the types of relationship you want to um, focus on in order to then reconnect and then have all these well-being outcomes and everything else? Um, partly because it was just a ridiculous task um, and it's really, really d difficult to kind of quantify people's um, experiences in what is very much a personal um, relationship that people have. Um, but I'm not one to kind of shy away from a challenge, so I went and did it. Um, and it worked out. It worked out great. And we wound up um, creating the Pathways Framework through the PhD that has now gone on to be used um, quite widely in the UK with a lot of organisations, um, quite diverse ones too, but also internationally in different nations and in different practices. So that's kind of my uh, journey, really. I kind of went all the way through there. And obviously, I didn't stop when I did the PhD and finished all that. I've then gone on to have academic positions at, at different universities and kind of carried on doing the research, which has been quite a privilege, really. That sounds like every researcher's dream to get paid to read lots. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I was super lucky. And I, it, it, was, it was one of those things where sometimes we, you know, some positive psychological interventions focus on the mindfulness aspect and the being quite present in that moment. And, I, and for three years, I, I certainly was. It was it's tough doing a PhD of course because um, generally you're the only person interested in it at that time and you're kind of isolated in this kind of little world that you're creating where you're trying to push the, the boundaries of knowledge a little bit but I really did love it um, it was a great time it was a tough time but it was a really really good one um, so I would never dissuade anyone from doing it as long as you know what 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 you are getting yourself in for at the end it, was, it, was, it, it, it really was brilliant it really was 
one of the things that I really liked about this research myself hmm. was this exploration of how it is that people can actually experience nature yeah. and feel kind of connected to it because that's what we're yeah. talking about here is how yes, connected exactly. someone feels to yes. nature um, and I've, I've got that research actually in front of me and there were quite a few things that you came up with which were quite surprising to me some of them mm. were fairly obvious so things like the beauty people yeah. appreciating nature was quite a an obvious one to me we like to go look at views and yes. tall trees and all kinds of yes. things like that but then there was things like compassion and meaning mm -hmm. which was a much kind of deeper level connection that you were talking about yeah. Would you be happy to talk us through some of those different connection pathways? Yeah, so the, the pathways framework itself. So from the outset, I'm somebody who's very uh, passionate about application of research. Um, you know, I work within a discipline of psychology that has a lot to contribute. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes some research is incredibly theoretical, doesn't really go anywhere. So I'm quite passionate about application. If I'm going to do a piece of work, I want there to be some kind of outcome as a result, a positive one at least, for people. And this is what Nature Connectedness kind of um, offers, and that's that's what I wanted as part of the Pathways framework to make it quite um, just readily readily applicable to whatever situation people are in. Something that wasn't kind of um, bogged down with huge ridiculous terms or kind of a real complex way of enacting them. But actually, um, a way of having something that's simple, that was adaptable, that people could just go out and use to reconnect, to get those benefits that they're really passionate about. And the framework itself was originally kind of conceptualized based on the biophilic values by Stephen Keller. They're essentially described from a socio-biological, kind of a psycho-evolutionary, some could argue, way of where we came from. So... What was really advantageous for our ancestors, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of years, whatever, part of our evolution, in terms of we've evolved in these natural environments. Therefore, they will have played a role in shaping us and the species we are today. So it's the idea that actually there's these nine values um, that describe how people can relate to nature in some capacity. Some of them are really positive. So you can have things like naturalistic, which are all about kind of skill development um, and kind of uh, engagement with nature. You can have humanistic value, which very much centers on kind of that emotional relationship that we have with wider nature itself. Some of them are a little bit kind of um, negative, but for good reason. The negativistic value describes actually an aversion towards dangerous nature, which makes sense. We would need that in order to survive. Other ones are things like the dominionistic, where we kind of dominate and control nature in order to survive. I essentially took those values and used them um, as a means to structure my investigation. And by doing that, by looking at, okay, what kind of ways do people relate to nature? What activities could they do on a regular basis? If we look at those and then what their levels of connection are, we're going to start to work out which ones are associated with the higher levels of connection, and which ones are maybe not so useful for our connection. And it wasn't surprising overall, uh, for some of them, that actually if you simply want to control and dominate nature, you're probably not going to have the best relationship with it. If you want to avoid it because you see it as harmful or dangerous, Again, it's not going to be positive for your relationship. We talk about, we think about how we relate to other people. The same relationship frames kind of 
map on as well. So actually, things like having a positive emotional relationship and that being good for your connection to nature makes sense entirely. As you say, beauty especially. People pay a premium for really lovely, beautiful views up from their houses, for example. You know, we value um, green space, we value blue space. It's really important for us. So, yeah, beauty coming in was was an, a no-brainer. But, of course, part of the research journey, you kind of go out and you need to verify these with evidence, which is, which is the whole purpose. So we can actually be certain that it's not just something, an artifact of what, what we initially think, but actually we've got the evidence for it um, in order to go forward. Meaning and compassion were interesting ones. Meaning, when I first did it, I had a slight issue because I think people struggle with it, or at least they think they do. When I present the pathways to groups, pathways of contact through the, through the senses, emotion, uh, meaning, compassion, and beauty, those, that, those five, relatively speaking, people kind of get on board with them. Especially if you get people to recall what were their ne- their kind of favourite nature experiences? Because they can relate to it, because they would have used them in some way. But meaning sometimes is a stumbling block for some. Because I think sometimes, when we talk about a UK context, we're not always that good about expressing ourselves in terms of what things mean to us or, or kind of finding those symbolic interactions in things. It can be kind of tough. But actually, when we've done work with groups, the meaning aspect comes through really, really strongly. And what we're also finding, and I suppose we'll come on to this later, is that meaning in life as, a, as an outcome for well-being, a sense of purpose, a sense of place, is becoming more and more strongly associated with our nature connection. So actually, I think it's a really important one. And it's one that I think people do without realising a lot of the time. You know, we, we've had, we do a lot of work with organizations. So the National Trust is a big one. They've, they've adopted this pathways, pathways framework and use it across all of their properties in, in, in England. And when you hear back from some of the, the workers when they've put on events using the pathways framework to help inform it and what people have done, you know, you hear stories of kids encountering moths for the first time in a, in a moth trap and they're, they're released. And they instantly start to understand, but also feel kind of a sense of where the moths fit within their world. And then they start to love them so much, and then they start to want to be like them. So then the next event that they do, they come dressed in a full moth outfit, which is incredible, which, which they've made themselves. So people, people can do it when they find a sense of purpose in nature and a sense of place, I think, as well. To, to a degree. When I've had people go out and do pathway-based activities, you know, people, when they write about maybe the good things in nature, which is another positive psychological intervention that uh, we've used and that, that works really well to help you identify, you know, a sense of gratitude, when you look at the kind of things that people pick out is the things they think are good and how they interpret them. You know, people talk about birds and then they start associating meaning behind those birds. You know, whether it's the sense of freedom because they can fly away and kind of that, that sense of like leaving troubles behind, things like that. I think it surprises some, some people actually how much meaning that they can get and they do get from, uh, the natural environment. And I think, you know, um, recently, due to COVID and other things, we certainly have reports from organizations, including 
national trust and others who have actually reported people stopping and telling them that actually they're, they're stopping and appreciating what they have and finding that that sense of meaning through it um, is really quite 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 powerful. And then when we come on to compassion, compassion is a really interesting one because I think it's something that we need a lot more. So there, there's the idea that we have this, this reptilian side of our brain that kind of responds to threats and, and wants to dominate and control and all that kind of stuff. We also have, we also have a compassionate part too. And actually the compassion um, pathway in terms of its conceptualization is very much informed by um, another uh, colleague of mine at, at the University of Derby, Professor Paul Gilbert, who's done loads on compassion-focused therapy and things like that. He's a fantastic, fantastic man. And he talks about the sense of, you know, self-compassion is really important, um, but also showing compassion to others. And that really is is what that pathway is all about. It's about finding a sense of similarity in nature, which is really the essence of what nature connectedness is. It's, it's realising you're part of something much bigger than yourself. You're part of this wider network community. And compassion really exemplifies it, because what it does do is, if you can see similarity in another, whether it's a plant, an animal, an area of land, whatever it might be, you're more likely to want to help it, which is massive. It's really, really important. But when we've um, done qualitative work with people, where they've reported what they've done whilst engaging with the pathways, when they talk about the sense of compassion, what they often do is they, they talk about nature being this really treasured other that they can relate to, that they can find a sense of similarity in. But what that ultimately does for them is that they realise that actually they can be kinder to themselves because nature doesn't judge. Nature is what it is and it accepts you for who you are when you go out into it or you engage with, with this kind of natural family that you belong to. And it doesn't judge. So people can feel that permission to be kinder to themselves, which is, which is really, really interesting. Those two pathways have been fantastic in terms of just taking it forward and I think you're right in terms of they're deeper and I think that is one thing that I was particularly struck by when I started this research journey in that the levels of connection that people were often reporting were kind of actually really average levels um, and we've since gone on to do work looking at where actually the level of nature connection where it really matters in terms of your health and well-being um, your mental health in particular, but also um, your pro-nature behaviour too, and how you actually relate to this world in a positive way. And it seems like actually you need quite a high, a high level of connectedness for it to really kick in. And many of the studies when I first started out before the pathways kind of formed together, they always reported fairly average or low levels of connection uh, in anything that they did. And so ultimately I think that the pathways framework, that the need to have ones that are fairly intuitive and really straightforward. You know, you can, many people naturally engage with their senses. They will naturally touch things. They will actually just notice, you know, the fragrance of pine trees, for example, or flowers, whatever it might be. They'll probably relate in, you know, emotively to nature in some way. But then to find that sense of meaning and compassion, I think are really needed, along with the others, to help push that level of connection to that level that's meaningful, which is why it is really, really important. This has changed for me personally, how I interact with nature quite a lot, because before I started looking into a lot of this stuff, I would say that I had a lot to do with nature because I spend a lot of time outdoors. 
Um, I keep animals, so we have to walk the dog, I have a horse. And for me, I would have said straight away, absolutely, of course I'm connected to nature. Mm. And then reading through your pathways, it was really interesting for me to realise how much I don't notice, even though I spend Mm. a lot of time there. It isn't necessarily that I'm taking the time to actually appreciate it. So back in November, I think it was, on this podcast, we had a bit of fun with the pathways and Mm. we got people, because I've got the National Trust information in front of me as well, which I think you sent over to me. Um, So we had a bit of fun with the activity that they get people to do. Mm -hmm. So looking at the different senses and different activities that people can take part in. And it was really good fun. We decided to do it for, or I decided to do it for seven days and challenged people to send me in what they've been doing. Yeah. So we got loads of pictures of things like sunsets. So the nice. appreciating the visual beauty of nature seemed to be a really easy thing. Um, but then there are a few people as well who did things like building little bug hotels mm. and um, I think things for hedgehogs to go and hibernate in. And it was those kind of things which I'm guessing we're talking about compassion here because yeah. we're creating something to help nature. It yeah. did seem to be those activities that people found the most fun in a way. And we're the most excited about talking about. So I guess that compassion really is kind of a deeper level of understanding for people. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it, compassion could be argued as another aspect of emotion. But actually, I, I, do, I, I do think it goes deeper than that because it, I, I, compassion really very much is, it is the main driver for the helping behaviours that people tend to do. And I think it's the one that people can get, in some respects, the most out of, as you say, because practically doing something and you can hopefully observe the effects of that action in this wider context. So instantly you are, so you're almost invested in something long term because you know that that is in the garden space or wherever you might be. And actually it's something that you can see grow and develop. You know, it's the same when you feed the, you know, I'm, I'm constantly feeding the birds and all the squirrels and everything else that, that come with it. Um, and I just love watching them. I, I absolutely adore it. You know, and then I start to wonder, oh, I wonder if they're all right when it's been snowing. Make sure that I've got some more food out because I want them to, you know, stay, you know, fat and healthy and alive and everything else because, you know, they are kind of my friends that come to, to visit. And, and it is seeing them as something like you. And I think, yeah, bug hotels, you know, kind of hedgehog houses, all that kind of stuff. They are just fantastic ways that anybody of, pretty much any age, can actually foster their sense of connection, but also do something positive as a result and feel something that is tangible, which I think is really, really important. Sometimes, you know, we talk about things in quite an abstract fashion as researchers and practitioners sometimes, but actually to, to live it and to feel it, I think is a wondrous thing. Um, and it's, it's an excellent opportunity. So that sounds wonderful to hear that people kind of Oh, going out and getting loads out of that and actually really enjoying doing something simple, but actually really important. And I think that, that, as we've shown in some population level surveys, is what's really important. It's not about going out and doing these grandiose, massive gestures or these huge kind of big adventure hikes or whatever it might be. Whilst they're brilliant, most people can't, can't do them. And we found that actually, it's your connection, it's the relationship you have, but also just spending time to do those simple pathway-based activities as often as you can, whenever you can, that leads to the most benefit for you, regardless of what kind of outcome that you're really interested in. Yeah, what I really liked about a lot of these things that people could do is that you didn't need to have access to loads and loads of space mm. to do it. 
so they could be done in gardens in communal spaces so it was really it was really nice to see it so accessible for people um because i'm really lucky i live in hampshire and yeah. there's plenty of countryside and it's it's absolutely beautiful but of course not everybody has that and not no, everybody exactly. has access to that so being able to still do some of these activities and build a connection with nature even when you only have small square to me was just really really exciting yeah this is it not usually when i so i get invited to give presentations and training on the pathways to organizations and things like that and I usually start off by asking people what their nature story is, as I kind of alluded to earlier. And in that, I always recall what my favourite nature story is. Now, I live in Nottingham, in just outside of the city centre. Um, so, yeah, there's like kind of park spaces around, but it's not, I'm not kind of surrounded by this countryside and, and everything else. My most treasured moment in nature involved me standing at the tram stop one day in the evening, I was coming back from work. And just paying attention to what was around me, you know, noticing, actually being invested in what is around. You know, everyone else was kind of focused on the phones and everything. And my favourite nature experience involved a peregrine falcon off the top of one of the buildings and a very unlucky pigeon. And yes, I, I, I was blown away by the speed and the agility and just the beauty of that moment, even though obviously it had a tragic end for the, for the pigeon, unfortunately. That moment just blew me away. And I think I genuinely was probably the only person that, that saw it as this falcon swooped down, managed to angle itself around a lamppost, snatch the pigeon in mid-fight and carry it off. And it was just, it was just mind-blowing. And so wherever you are, people call it mundane nature, but it's really not because you can get those powerful interactions where you develop your relationship, where you can be bored and wowed wherever you are and I think that that is certainly part of it for sure. So let's talk about the connection to well-being. Mm. How does being more connected to nature help us feel happier? Yeah so it's always been a, an assumed thing I mentioned kind of at the start people tend to look at nature connectedness because they're interested in the well-being aspect that's really around 2004 roughly maybe a little bit before that's when kind of the research impetus really started to take hold. And it was all because people were interested in well-being interventions and ways that you could boost how people feel. So it tended to be more focused on the hedonic aspects. So you feeling uh, kind of vitalized, happy, you know, full of joy, all that kind of stuff. And lots of research was done on that. Research then kind of started to think, well, okay, is it just about that? momentarily kind of moments of happiness or is it about the long-term stuff so meaning and purpose things like that as well the good news is that nature connectedness kind of affects and improves both and pretty much a relatively equal level which is really exciting it's the idea that um, we can get both calm and joy from nature so if we go back to that kind of psychoevolutionary um, argument um, we can look at uh, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous systems and the idea that actually nature affects both so if you need a um, a sense of kind of uplift you need to be full of joy or energy being out in nature can give you that but equally if you need a sense of calm and a bit of release from stress strain whatever it might be nature can also be a really safe space for you to engage with it and to get that moment of respite, to get that calm, to get that kind of release from it. What we've 
found, though, is that it's not just nature that is universal for that. So often people conflated the idea that our relationship to nature and the amount of time we spent on it, which you kind of alluded to earlier, were one and the same thing. The research now has come to a fairly consistent um, answer to this, is that actually the two are very different. And in fact, if we're looking at improving our sense of well-being, it's not just enough to be in nature. You know, contact with nature is useful, it does benefit. But actually, our relationship by far and away improves these well-being outcomes far more greatly. In fact, we're looking at around three times as much. So nature connection has an additive benefit. It is totally different. Yes, it is one thing to be in nature, but you can be in nature and you might notice it, you might not appreciate it, you might not relate to it. It's actually not being out, but it's about the quality of that relationship that you have. And interestingly, time also doesn't necessarily lead to greater levels of well-being per se. Again, it's that time relating rather than the time being, which is important. So we sometimes call it moments, not not minutes. It's about having those moments, those simple moments where you truly relate to the natural world and find your place in it in a positive way. That actually leads to you being just happier and finding that, that sense of place, that sense of meaning far more effectively than simply being in nature. And part of that, you know, is relating through the pathways. The pathways time and time again have been shown to lead to that that reconnection and, and seem to be really effective when used as kind of uh, frames uh, to engage people in improving their level of connection, which is really important. So partly it is a physiological response. It goes through our nervous system, which is really important. But it is also finding our sense of place within the world, which I think is really, really key. We are finding that um, it's also good for mental health. So sometimes, you know, we talk about well-being more generally, and then we talk about mental health as a separate thing. Um, and it seems like the effects are the same in terms of helping to reduce the amount of uh, mental health issues that people report. So um, nature seems to be a protective factor. And this has been shown in quite a few studies, uh, both in the UK and abroad as well. There's a really good Canadian study that talks that showed that whilst um, our levels of connection can dip, so they start quite high from kind of as a child. And when you get to your teenage years, it goes quite down. And then it takes a while until you're right in your early 30s for it to recover to where it was before. Uh, and then it kind of go, goes up a little bit. Um, even though that, that was the case, when they looked at the teenage population, nature connectedness was a protective factor for the teenagers not developing mental health issues, which is massive. So... You know, when I read that, I get inspired because I think, well, okay, that's that's really powerful. But also then I think, okay, well, there's a lot of work to do in terms of helping uh, teenagers, young people to reconnect with nature as well, along with other, other things that are really good for their well-being and their mental health too, in order to give them the best chance of being free from the very worst of those kind of conditions. Nature is quite an amazing one. It's not a, a, a one-fix-all thing which sometimes people think it might be you know we can show through stats and through you know kind of qualitative data as well that it's really powerful that people 
go, changes and improvement and their well-being, everything is really boosted. But it can't change everything. It has a role to play, though, and I think it's a role that people have tended to forget or have been so caught up in really busy lives. And there's, you know, we live in, an, in within the attention economy where everything is vying for our attention. You know, apps and gadgets and tech and everything is constantly being refined to engage us more. But actually, one of the best ways, best things that can actually do that is everywhere around us. The aspects of nature that are there on our doorstep that are wider and bigger than us um, are there to do that. So sometimes taking that time to actually reconnect and engage, I think is a, a thing that people forget, but I think people are, seem to be in a growing way starting to remember and starting to do more of, which is fantastic as well. So it's really good news for people that the evidence suggests that it's not about time spent. It's more yeah. about time spent engaging because it does mean that those people who do have really busy lives can potentially get quite good benefits without spending huge amounts of time in nature. Yeah, this is it. Um, in our, so we did a population survey for the National Trust as part of their 125th anniversary last year. So if you're really interested in it, you can read the Noticing Nature report online that we helped produce. And in that, we looked at adults and children um, in a representative sample for England. And in that, um, it was very clear that actually, if you want to improve your well-being, it's not about spending loads of time in nature. It's not about just being there. It's doing some very simple activities, you know, everyday things, you know, like looking out the window and seeing the birds or listening to a bird call as you're walking home or whatever it might be. There's, there's, there's always going to be a moment where sometimes you can appreciate nature, like my falcon story. It's about taking the time to notice. Noticing is a really, really key one. And it's something that, as our attention is kind of diverted in lots of different directions for all sorts of reasons, one that sometimes it's just, you know, five, ten minutes. Take out, actually just be in nature and appreciate it in some way. Be a part of it for that time. And people will see the benefit. It is really, really important. Um, and sadly, it's something that, that most people don't do because in that same report, we found that people were really concerned with um, the state of nature and they wanted to improve it. They, you know, had lower levels of well-being, and actually, you could see that in the data set, the very highest of, of connected people had much higher levels of well-being, much lower levels of things like anxiety, depression, etc., compared to those on the lower end of, of their connection. So actually, the story is, is I don't think a lot of people are doing these simple things. And we found that around 80% weren't doing those kind of simple activities, which is massive. When actually we, we, we've been able to show that it has such a big benefit, which is really important. The good news, though, is that other research has shown that uh, for things like, say, 30 Days Wild, run by the, by the Wildlife Trust, they do that every year. They've been doing it for five, six years or something like that. The data year on year constantly shows that actually engaging every day, even in a small way, you know, to for 30 days, really good for your well-being and things like that. But those kind of things tend to uh, attract those that are probably high, quite highly connected to nature already. Those that have a lower level of connection benefit the most. They see them the biggest changes. So ultimately, the bottom line is it's never too late. There's always the opportunity and it's about going out and doing it because 
you will see a benefit. If you're, if you're really interested and in wanting to improve your well-being or the well-being of friends, family, whoever it might be, reconnecting with nature is a really good way of doing it. Um, we found that actually by far and away, it's important, it's just as, or sometimes more important, than established factors that we know, that we've always known are good for well-being, marital status, level of income, education, things like that. It's as good as, if not better than any of those. So, add it to your repertoire. It's an extra thing that you can do to improve your well-being and, and you'll see some brilliant results. So you've already suggested a few things that people can do, like just mm-hmm. noticing birdsong and things more when they're just out and about walking and things. Yeah. Do you have any other little tips that people can have a go at if this has piqued their interest a bit? The bottom line is that what you want to do is find a way that works for you that draws on what we know does work. So the pathways framework, so it's about using your senses, forming an emotional connection, not being afraid to express it, I think is quite important too. Finding a sense of meaning or understanding your place within the wider natural world, if you're doing that. Fostering a sense of compassion by finding some sense of similarity with nature and doing something positive to help it, as we've already discussed. And actually appreciating, just stopping and appreciating nature's beauty. If you could find a way of doing that within your own context that really interests you, you'll see the results. So, you know, we've suggested things like, um, you know, walking barefoot on grass. You know, it sounds like a crazy thing, but actually when people do it, and I've got them to do it at like kind of more corporate organizations, they love it. They think it's great. Um, obviously be safe and all that as well. But, um, kind of, you know, engage your senses. You know, if there's a particular bird call that, that you really want, try and find that bird or, or just, just spend the time listening in your garden. Spend the time helping nature in some way to trigger that, that compassion, that building and having putting your bird seed out, whatever it is, because then ultimately the bottom line is that the pathways don't just work as on their own. Actually they interact with one another. So actually, you know, you may put down bird seed to attract the birds. So you may hear their calls, so you're engaging your senses. You're then watching them and, and, and getting joy from seeing them play or eat or bathe or whatever it might be at your bird table or on the ground where you put the seed, whatever it might be. And you can start to Ultimately, it's about just finding your place within it. So whatever it might be, even if it's just going out on a daily walk to get your exercise during lockdown, rather than just be messaging on your phone or whatever, take a moment to appreciate what's around you, whether it's what is in a tree. You may see something that you've never seen before. You know, it could be a bird nesting, it could be a bird bear, a squirrel, it could be maybe a, a very small insect, whatever it might be. Try and appreciate the beauty of it. Um, try and be curious about the world. Actually be interested as, as to what that thing is, is doing. What is it? What does it mean to you? How do you and it kind of share some commonality in terms of, you know, your role within the world or whatever it might be? It's just about taking those little simple moments. And some of them are a bit more specific that we talk about in the research. You know, if you don't live by the coast, you can't go and paddle in the sea, for example. But, you know, you may be able to hopefully do that one day when you're able to go back on holiday again. Uh, the, sometimes it's just about being mindful of your surroundings and noticing it and engaging with it in a way that really suits you. But as long as you're triggering your senses or using them in some way, you feel free to express emotionally what it, you know, the experience that you are having, the joy, um, the fun, 
um, whether it maybe even make, make, makes you feel a bit calm, you know, and serene and relaxed. Perfect, they're brilliant. Whether it's finding a sense of purpose and place where you are, whether it's just seeing that nature's like you, you know, everyone needs a home, everything needs food to survive. These are all simple things that you can begin to see um, to help trigger your compassion. You just appreciate that, you know, the, what visually you can experience if you can, in terms of colour, shape, whatever it may be. Anything like that, you you will see results. It was fascinating for me because I kind of put this challenge out and talked to mm. about it with a few clients and things. And the person who made the hedgehog hibernation thing um, was actually a client at the time. And we ended up oh. talking about how they'd realised that the hedgehog needs all of these things mm. in order to kind of live safely, get what it needs. And it almost led on to a conversation of like, well, are you bringing everything into your life that gives you what you need in order mm. to live happily and have everything that you need? And it was, it was a really interesting conversation to see how that progressed for that person. Um, and that's exactly what you've been talking about. So, yeah, I would certainly say to people to give it a go, if nothing else. Yeah, I mean, um, ultimately, you probably can't lose out from doing that because either way, it's going to get you out of the house or you're going to enjoy something within the home, whatever it might be, you're going to benefit regardless. So even if you know, you're not that okay with, with nature connectedness, you're not that interested, but you're more interested in kind of the well-being game that you can get, honestly, you cannot lose. Um, all the research would say you're going to win something and it's going to be good for you, which would be fantastic. Amazing. Well, I think that's a perfect place to stop. So thank you very much for for giving us your time and expertise because I know that you've done a lot of work in this area. Anytime. And if people are really interested in nature connectedness, uh, myself and Professor Miles Richardson and a colleague of ours who now uh, works in Canada, Holly Ann Passmore, Dr. Holly Ann Passmore, we put together a, a massive open online course on nature connectedness, which is free to access now. You go search uh, Nature Connectedness MOOC, so M-O-O-C. You go straight to it, and it's a free course. You can go through, you can learn all about the kind of stuff we've been talking about and more. Um, take whatever units you want, but if you're really keen, have a go, have a look. That's awesome, actually. I'll um, put a link in the description. So yeah. anyone listening, the link should be just below where you've clicked to play this. Lovely. So, yeah, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast for notifications on future episodes. And if you have the time to write a quick review, then that would be greatly appreciated. To find out more about me and the work that I do, please head to www.anxietytoconfidence.com. That's the number two, anxietytoconfidence.com.